Welcome to uh, all my listeners out there. Uh, This is Karen Tate uh, with Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and I just want to say welcome to you, whether you are across town or across the globe. Uh, And thanks also goes out to uh, Reclaiming uh, for that little snippet from one of their um, uh, campfire chants called We Are the Rising Sun. Uh, and if uh, you are just kind of getting into that and you want to hear more, uh, stick with us till the end of the show and I will play it in its entirety. Uh, and tonight I am so happy to tell you uh, I have back with us uh, after uh, my interview tonight uh, some information from our roving goddess reporter Pat. Uh, she sent in some good stuff uh, I think you're going to want to hear, uh, and I'm happy to share it with listeners. Uh, but tonight's guest, uh, he is a pagan elder. Uh, his name is Evo Dominguez, Jr., and um, we're going to be discussing the future of the pagan community as he sees it. Uh, and I met Evo uh, back in January, and uh, our conversation tonight is based on the talk he gave there as one of the keynote speakers and um, this uh, gathering was the Conference on Current Pagan Studies, which is held uh, every January in Claremont, California. So tonight, uh, Evo and I uh, plan to talk about uh, the work of building coalitions and bridges uh, between different communities, belief systems and ideologies, um, and we all know how difficult that can be. Uh, We'll talk about uh, his insights uh, or practices to facilitate this work, and I expect Evo will tell us about the important work of the new Alexandrian Library, which I am uh, just in awe of. Uh, We were speaking a little bit about that uh, before we went live, and of course his own books. Uh, which are part of how he reweaves the magic of the world. So um, by way of his uh, bio, let me uh, introduce you to Evo. Um, uh, He is a visionary and uh, practitioner of a variety of esoteric disciplines, and he's been active in Wicca and the pagan community since 78 and teaching since 1982. Uh, He was a founding member of the first coven of the Assembly of the Sacred Wheel, a Wiccan tradition where he currently serves as one of its elders. And uh, the titles of uh, the books he's authored include uh, Casting Sacred Space, The Core of All Magical Work, Spirit Speak, Knowing and Understanding Spirit Guides, Ancestors, Ghosts, Angels, and the Divine, Practical Astrology for Witches and Pagans, Using the Planets and the Stars for Effective Spell Work, Rituals, and Magical Work. And yes, of course, uh, he has a new book uh, waiting in the wings uh, to be finished and published, and that's called The Keys to Perception, A Practical Guide to Psychic Development, and it will be out in September. And his website is his name, uh, evodominguezjr.com. So Evo, uh, welcome, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. I'm glad to be invited to be here. Thank you. 
Well, you know, I so enjoyed your talk at the uh, at the Pagan Studies Conference uh, in Claremont, and I'm glad you were able to, uh, to fit us into your schedule because obviously you're busy, busy, um, and you've accomplished so much, uh, you know, in a relatively short period of time. But, you know, why don't we kind of just start at the beginning? Um, you know, uh, you became a pagan. How did that come about, and uh, what was your what would you know? What was your spirituality before becoming a pagan? Um, I, I got to actually share a story that I haven't shared before online because it just suddenly dawned on me. Um, my, both my grandmothers uh, lived with us for quite a few years when I was young, because we had uh, fled Cuba for the United States, so they were living with us. And uh, one of my grandmothers was named Rosario, and the other was named Zenaida which translates to, you know, one of them was named Rosary uh, because we were a Catholic family, and my other grandmother was named Zenaida, which if you translate it actually translates out to Daughter of Zeus. Wow. And and interestingly enough, they were both very, very religious and spiritual, uh, and both Catholic, but uh, Rosario uh, was much more conservative and focused on the orthodoxy of Catholicism, at least from a Cuban Catholic perspective. And Zenaida was very supportive of uh, the visions I would have or the dreams I would have or the or, or finding me talking to things that weren't there, but she didn't uh, view them as uh, immaterial. But in both cases, uh, in their own way, they supported the idea that uh, the world was filled with many more things than were clear and obvious. And so I was, I was a kid that had a lot of, of experiences, and even though I had a pressure to ignore some of the things, there was family support for the idea of maybe you are having an experience, mm. which I think left me open to doing some exploration. My father um, eventually became a, a university professor, so I had a library card uh, from the time I was, I guess, 10 or 12 that would get me into the university library, which meant I could read books or browse about looking at things that you'd rarely get to see that early, which, of course, led to me quickly becoming uh, enamored of every kind of religion and wanting to check them all out. A brief <laughs> period of a brief period of, uh, of atheism around, you know, for about a year, and then uh, found all sorts of books on Tarot and magic and Kabbalah and started experimenting with things until that became too much and I got really strong pushback from my family. But by then I'd explored too much. And I'd had too many experiences which didn't fit into neat little boxes. And mm-hmm. eventually, uh, once again, through the, you know, I think being in a, growing up in a university town let me experience many different things. And the fencing club at the University of Delaware, because I, I fenced when I was a teenager in, in, in college, uh, there was uh, somebody there whose uh, pentacle fell out from underneath their T-shirt after a fencing match, and I grilled them. And uh, though their eyes were big because I was a minor, uh, finally convinced them to put me on a mailing list for a pagan newsletter that was uh, quasi-local to me. So I found my way into paganism in a kind of organic way, um, I guess yeah, I don't know if you need more than that. Does, does that kind of cover it? No. Well, well, it's so interesting. I mean, first of all, that you know your family didn't squash. 
um, you know, your experiences out of you, you know, or minimize yeah. them, you know, because that happens with so many kids. And right. uh, I think that just puts the kibosh on on the mystical. And I'm curious, now I, I, I won't even, uh, Rosario, I can pronounce, the and other grandmother, though, um, how in the world did she get, uh, what, was, what would, you said it was daughter of Zeus, was it? Yeah, I mean, it's a popular, it's actually a fairly popular um, uh, name in, in, in parts of Latin America, but it, but its derivation it actually means daughter of Zeus, though, I, though, you know, my family had an odd relationship with mythology. I had an uncle who was named uh, uh, Radamanthus after one of the judges of the dead, <laughs> and 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 my favorite aunt, actually the only one that uh, uh, still talks to me because I was kind of shunned when I came out as gay later on in life, mm-hmm. um, uh, is, is named Aurora. Um, so there, there are a couple, of, and actually Evo means archer or yew tree if you translate it all the way out. So I mean, there was some kind of you know thing that certain kinds of mythological names were uh, in the in the family um, background. I'm not sure how they got there completely. Yeah. Um, well, and, and you know, just uh, well, I mean, of course, all families are different and religious to different degrees. Right. But you would almost think a name like that uh, in some families could have been blasphemy. You know, a pagan name. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they forgot what it meant somewhere along the line. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe maybe, I don't maybe know. you're, you're I don't know. very right. Wow. Now they came from Cuba, but you never lived in Cuba. I was born there. Came over when oh, I was you were a born kid. there. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, though uh, our, our family was on the run a lot, it seems, after having been in one place forever. Um, we most of my genetic ancestry comes from Galicia, northwestern Spain, which is unfortunately where the Spanish Civil War started. Mm-hmm. So uh, my family fled Spain because of the horrors of Franco and the fascists, and moved to Cuba to get away. I see. And that I see. And then again, once again, generation later, we get uprooted and come to the United States. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it, it's hard to even fathom that, I think, for most Americans. You know, I mean, we grow up and we, you know, here in this country and uh, lives like you're describing, uh, you know, unless you're, I guess you're a refugee. I mean, we see that happening in the news right. now. But uh, it just kind of feels... Uh, you know, so far removed, uh, and it, uh, not not the norm, certainly. Uh, but getting yeah. back to you coming uh, to paganism, um, I'm curious, if it hadn't been paganism, what would have been your second choice? Oh, golly, I would have absolutely ended up in uh, one of the uh, Western mystery traditions, uh, probably okay. one of the ceremonial lines, uh, partly because I could eat... It, the access to the books I had, I, it was mostly that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that would have been, um, and and actually there were more addresses that I could write to and find uh, uh, online, or uh, rather back then it was uh, through the correspondence schools. But you know, I also spent a lot of times uh, out in the woods by myself, uh, and uh, I think that the connection to access to the great outdoors and even though I was a very, you know, bookish, um, scholarly sort of kid, I liked spending time out under the trees a lot. Mm-hmm. So I was definitely mm-hmm. attracted to nature, and so that part was still there. But uh, 
I probably would have ended up in one of the ceremonial systems um, had I not encountered um, quasi-local pagans and um, the existence of a community that um, I couldn't really interact with until I turned uh, 18, but at least I knew it existed. Yeah, yeah, just by virtue of the fact they were there in your backyard that gave you uh, people to, um, and, and, you know, in, that, in a way that kind of was the case for me as well. You know, uh-huh. I, uh, when I opened my eyes to the idea of the goddess, you know, suddenly there was the Temple of Isis. And uh, it was just, it was in the right place at the right time. Although right. now it feels, feels like it was probably inevitable anyway, um, it, it's interesting how the universe conspires to move us around like chess pieces. Um, we are, or who knows? <laughs> uh, but uh, but again, you know, you were so lucky that your family was such that uh, you know you could just go off to the library and you know you you weren't censored in what you read. And uh, I mean, because you think about uh, you know so many maybe right wing families, for instance, to read some of the stuff we're into um, would have been a big problem. You know, I well, mean, Sarah, Sarah Palin was into book burning, you know. Sure. I, I will say that, uh, you know, I don't want to pay, paint a completely rosy picture because here's where it broke down for them two ways. One, um, they discovered I was gay because they were opening my mail and read a love letter when I was 18. And mm-hmm. that was completely out of the realm of, of what they could cope with. And there were a number of times that they did squelch what I was doing because my family had a overactive, overdeveloped sense of what will everyone think. Ah. Um, appearances mattered greatly. Mm-hmm. So, as, as, so as long as none of my weirdness was visible to the rest of the world, they could cope. Interesting. Well, and I wonder if, it, if that was uh, a characteristic of that generation, because I could say the very sure. same thing about... Sure. Uh, you know, my my parents very very worried about what the neighbors would think, uh, and I know when they found out I was into this, uh, it was like, oh well, when did you abandon Jesus? And oh no, right. you're going to go to hell. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it's it's funny looking back on it, you know. Um, but um, so uh, so which uh, who would you if, if you had to name one or two uh, who would be the the maybe the authors or teachers who are most influential? Oh golly, um, I would say that uh, the uh, most influential writer early on for me was Dion Fortune because mm-hmm. I could find her books, um, and she, in addition to writing nonfiction about magic. She also wrote uh, novels and short stories that basically spoke about magic and and, uh, gods and goddesses in an expanded world uh, in fictional format, which made sense to me as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to say that um, in terms of meeting face-to-face somebody as a teacher, even though I did not take initiation uh, from them, uh, Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki and uh, mm-hmm. a woman named Shakma Windrum, uh, I, I count as among the uh, most uh, influential in terms of life choices around magic that I made over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, the reason I didn't pursue uh, studying with the goal of initiating under either of them was that um, I had already made other promises to what I wanted to do with my life, and I take 
uh, promises and oaths very seriously. So I would have been un, uh, untrue to any promise I would have given them if I had initiated with them. Right, right, because that would have meant you would have – I mean, what would that have meant to you? I mean, how did that lock you in? Well, I, you know, um, here's the part where it will hinge on my parents for a moment. So when um, everything blew up because of me being queer and uh, me not wanting to, uh, you know, uh, have a 9 by 5 uh, circumspect uh, upper-middle-class uh, uh, this is how you get into academia kind of life. Um, they were furious with me and, and so disappointed with me that I actually got offered money by my parents to change my last name and move out of the state. Because so of their shame? Everything, yes, so that I wouldn't embarrass the family. Wow. So what do you do, when you're, <clears throat> what do, you do when you're a young pup and uh, that heavy bit gets laid down and I will say that um, uh, part of it was the contrast of having started with a family full of lots of love and support and then suddenly going very nightmarish Mm -hmm. Um, and you know and not that I didn't see the signs but it happened fast but so after coming to terms with everything um, I said no um, I will always keep my name if you if I did change my name it would be to mom's maiden name and uh, by the way, uh, I, I make a vow to uh, put my roots down here in Delaware, and though I may travel, this is where I will live for the rest of my life. So did they ever get used to it? Never. Never. Oh, that's Never. sad. But you know, no. Evo, don't don't you think? And and I'm not just looking for a you know a, a happy ending here. But sure, you know, sure. don't don't you think that it's these big challenges that really shape us? You know, I oh, mean, absolutely. And and I mean, they're meant to happen. You know, because as I I, I kind of <clears> describe it, because you know, uh, I, you know, who hasn't had challenges? It's like you either find your spine. And mm-hmm. you define yourself, or you just become a hairball in the corner, you know? Sure, sure. Um, with, without going into to taking up lots of time and lots of lurid details, there was a, a particularly horrible uh, weekend with my folks where um, many bad things happened over the course of one weekend. Um, I will call it abuse of a variety of kinds. And there was one moment where I literally popped out of my body, was floating above, um, you know, and looking down, and had absolute clarity that absolutely nothing that was truly me could ever be harmed. Mm. That's pretty wonderful. And popped back down into my body. And, you know, uh, and it stuck with me. I mean, you know, it, it certainly didn't stay crisp and clean like those kinds of numinous experiences occur, but I had that moment of absolute clarity that everything that was really important about me was completely always uh, inviolate and separate and could not be harmed. Right. Wow. And were were you an only child or you had siblings? Um, I had a younger sister, um, and and she still lives, but I haven't spoken to her um, uh, in many, many, many years, not since my mom died. Um, yeah. Because um, she, you know, she followed the party line. She, you know, yeah. uh, became a, you know, became a school teacher, taught at a Catholic school, eventually did a bunch of other stuff. But um, she, uh, her politics are somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan, so we don't speak <laughs> much. 
<laughs> well, you know, I was just reading a book by this old author. You might recognize his name. Recognize his name. Uh, not a pagan, but I think uh, in alignment with ideals of the of sacred feminine liberation theology. I just discovered him. Actually, I probably should have known him way before now. But Eric Fromm, and. Oh, yeah. And I was reading his book, To Be, uh, To Have or To Be, and then I started looking into his other book, which is, um, oh, uh, Running Away from Freedom. And it was about how these people, like you're describing, you know, your sister and uh, like my family too, you know, they they find that they have to conform. You know, uh, it's easier. Well, I mean, there's, it's awful lot easier to conform, isn't it? You know, oh, yeah, uh, rather than be in the fringe of the fringe like us and, you know, mm-hmm. suffering the, uh, you know, being on on the outside of things. But yet, um, I and, and I mean, and not that, you know, we don't have problems, you know, but I, I, I really started, well, I mean, I've always seen conforming as a, uh, in a way, a cop-out, you know, uh, but, you know, Eric Fromm really started to make me see that, you know, th- these people who um, like the input in the little boxes, who don't really always want to think for themselves, who uh, it's not easy for them to go be the activists in the street and um, stick their neck out, you know, because uh, that stuff is really all hard. Um, that, you know, these people who aren't willing to do that, they really are running away from their freedom as active adult human beings in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I I think that uh, part of its nature and part of its nurture in terms of, you know, how much need do we have for things to be predetermined for us and how much need do we have to strike out in our own directions? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, part part of it comes from, you know, the culture and part of it, you know, is I think as intrinsic as, uh, you know, how introverted or extroverted a person is likely to be, even though that's fluid to a point, but we all have our, our, our comfort zones around those things. True, true. And we're more comfortable maybe with some things than others. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, maybe we can only conform to a point or rebel to a point. Um, right. You know, right. Um, well, well, I, I, I bet. Well, you know, I don't always ask this, but I would presume that you and I have something in common. And that is that our families probably have not read any of our books. <laughs> that would be correct. <laughs> so I often warn people that if they hunt around uh, online in the wrong, right or wrong places, you'll encounter my father's books. Um, that are that are about completely different topics. <laughs> okay, and that they shouldn't confuse the two. They shouldn't confuse the two. Actually, I was uh, uh, teaching at uh, uh, Temple Fest, Temple of Witchcraft's uh, uh, gathering uh, last year, and somebody had Googled me before the event to, you know, who is this guy and, you know, what is he teaching? And they had some things right, but then they brought up something, and I said, no, if, if, you, if, you're, if, I, uh, if you're looking to talk to me about Cervantes and Don Quixote, that's my dad. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so that explains why in your email address you have Junior. Yeah, well, I, that that's a travesty. But uh, so, um, okay, and, and I guess we need to get back on topic for tonight. But so my parents butchered my name and made it Evo 
Evo Dominguez Jr. instead of Evo Dominguez Barreco because they were desperate for us to be as American as possible, as fast as possible. Oh, okay. So, so they, so uh, when uh, I became an American citizen, you know, the name got uh, Americanized, if you will, because you know, Junior's, you know, a totally uh, right. Anglo convention. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, they, um, but the one thing they did that right there is that they never spoke a word of English in front of us in the house. We only heard Spanish oh. in the house, so that one we'd keep the Spanish, and two, so we wouldn't imprint on their accent. Oh, okay. We, we didn't grow up hearing accented English. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, all right. We're getting back on track a little bit. Yeah. Um, about all right. So you or uh, your coven is the assembly of the sacred wheel, uh, a Wiccan tradition. Um, tell me a little bit about your tradition. How? Uh, and I mean, you know, I know, uh, you know, all of us Wiccan, pagan, goddess folks, we're all so right. eclectic. Um, right. You know, none of us would probably, uh, you know, we would hear a description, uh, you know, or a label, and we'd say that's probably not me. Um, but uh, how? What makes you the same or different from, say, somebody in goddess spirituality? Hmm. Well, um, I think the part that is probably the same is that our organization is mostly women. <laughs> okay. Uh, which is, you know, it's, it's not a universal truth, but uh, the, the vast majority of, of members in leadership are women and always have been, and that tends to be the case, because, uh, you know, uh, we ought, tend to have more rituals that are focused on the goddess than focused on the god or both. Mm-hmm. Or I should say, you know, the masculine, uh, feminine, the masculine, divine, though technically part of what we do, you know, there there tends to be uh, more work done with the goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely work with seasonal celebrations, which are uh, maybe this varies from tradition to tradition, but the whole idea of having celebrations that are focused on the changes in the earth as opposed to historical calendar events for important religious events is a common point. Um, the idea of uh, personal transformation and growth as being uh, as much of a goal as uh, belief or specific practices. And here, mm-hmm. here's where I'm going to say that um, this is the one thing I'll tease out and say, this is the way that the assembly resembles the goddess spirituality community more, say, than uh, more traditional Wicca. Mm-hmm. Uh, our rituals and initiations often are very much focused on personal transformation for the individual as opposed to reenacting uh just reenacting uh mythic cycles or 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 uh, offering devotion to particular gods and goddesses just for the sake of the practice. Okay. So so there's there's a commonality there. One thing that perhaps uh is the same and different is that uh, we're actually at this point 14 covens in the assembly. We started as one and eventually grew to 14. Um and our decision, we are connected, we're not, people think of themselves as members of a coven and members of, a, of the assembly, the whole tradition kind of co-equally. They're not, one is not necessarily viewed as their primary connection, mm-hmm. which gets them to, so, work, gets them to work together more with each so other. So it, it's like, a, it, and, and then that also kind of gives you a sense of a very big tribe too, doesn't it? Yes, yes. We just had our annual retreat this past weekend, 
and we're about eh, about 140 people, and there were like about over the court about 80 people present for the retreat for the weekend. Very cool. And is there, in, are all of the covens in the same state, or uh, just on uh, the east are, coast? Or? Uh, Mid-Atlantic is probably the best way of putting it because. One of the other rules that we set up, and oh no, sorry, here, here's another bit. So we do complicated decision making, which I'm going to say is probably a hallmark of most of the goddess spirituality community as well. What do I mean by that? Um, some of our decisions are made by consensus. Some of our decisions, are, and here's, some of our decisions are made by uh, group vote, as happened during our business meeting. And some people and or some committees are appointed as temporary autocrats. Okay, that's an interesting title, or label, temporary autocrats. Yes. So, for example, uh, if it's a matter that is about uh, uh, the the spiritual stuff, this is what we believe about uh, us as a tradition, our mission. This is what we believe in terms of uh, what process should be involved in people's initiations, et cetera, et cetera. Stuff like that tends to end up being discussed, debated, and decided by consensus. When we originally wrote our charter, we did it by consensus. And as, as you're well aware, that's often a lengthy process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we're voting on calendar for, for – I just said it. If we're setting up our calendar for which events are we doing when next year we vote. Because okay. some covens do open things that are open to everybody, and we also do events that are open to the whole community, et cetera. And we're not going to do the schedule by consensus. And right. we're not going to vote on the budget by consensus. But we also do, every couple of years, a big conference called the Between the Worlds Conference, not to be confused with a similarly named campout event. And two or three people that are at the core of that are basically the budget is approved, and they're basically granted, you, you make every decision that's needed on the fly because you, it's hard to run a conference. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying. Right, right, so, right. Yeah, so, exactly. You have yeah. to decide, and you can't have sit there and, and uh, no try time. to get consensus with 20 people. Yeah. No, there's no time. So that we use, so that so I'd say we use a complicated form of decision making where, which flavor or style of decision making is is dependent upon the task. Okay. Well, and and I have to tell you, you know, I I, I am sure, you know, it, I mean, this all sounds great, and I'm sure it's not without its problems sometimes. Yep. But but you seem, you know, you, what you are describing to me, and just by virtue of you guys, um, and I want you to talk about the new Alexandrian Library, you right. seem like you are far and away maybe much more organized than so many of the groups I ever have rubbed shoulders with. And it makes me feel so good um, because it seems like, you know, you've kind of really got your shit together and you're, uh, you know, in, in your, you know, it, it, you know, I've always felt like maybe the paying community really needed to mature. Uh, because half the ones I run into, well, the only thing they're really concerned about is go into, you know, go into classes to learn to do spells for money, uh, you right, know, money right. or, or uh, you know, uh, love, uh, and it doesn't really go beyond that, you know. Um, but but you are, you know, really sort of staking out something different. I mean, you are really building a foundation. You know, part of it is, well, okay, one of the, we were at our charter creation, and, and, and that was, you know, a whole weekend of 
consensus process. And indeed, there were moments when, you know, you wondered, do I want them to die? Do I want to die? Because, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you're on your umpteenth cup of coffee and it's late in the evening and you haven't gotten through as much. But, I mean, there's there's real stuff because it's human beings. However, um, from the get-go, the goal was to create um, something that was a community in a, it may, we may not be living together, but it is an intentional community, even if an intentional community without walls. Maybe that's a good way to put it. I mean, okay. We, so that we so that we were creating a structure that we believed would hold us together as a community, and um, as much as it was about this is the magic we do, and these are the things that we hold as important values, and we always had the idea that we wanted to do more for the community in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it started in Delaware, though it grew into the nearby states. And by the way, one of the rules we had, which I keep saying and I'm going to get to and don't say, is that our, each of our covens um, is, is clumped into basically groups of four. Uh, so and that, that act like kind of like a, a resource group for each other. They proctor students to each other. Um, they help do they do communal rituals with each other in addition to stuff so that because one of the things we wanted to avoid was what we called the uh, the toxic nuclear family coven. Mm-hmm. So if you have four covens that are in close geographic proximity, a.k.a. they can't be more than um, two or three hours drive away from each other, then yeah. they're close enough so that you can share workshops, you can do group rituals together, you see each mm-hmm. other regularly, and um, instead of it being just uh, the people in your coven, you have other people. So it's like the difference between being in a nuclear family and being in an extended family. The dynamics tend to uh, be more self-leveling than uh, when this is all you got. Right. Well, I know here in California, and I'm talking back in the 90s, so don't any of my listeners think I'm naming names or talking about anybody sure, sure. currently currently in the community. Um, uh, but, you know, there, there was just so much competition among groups, you know. Right. And, and that was something that was always so sad that, you know, why did it have to be that way? You know, well, I mean, there are not that many of us. Why did we have to feel like we couldn't just all get along, you know, so to speak. Um, and I, I wonder how you, I mean, have you managed to get beyond that? And if so, is it your structure, like that you just described, I that mean, helps not, that? I mean, I think that helps, but there's a, the, there's another bit. And I think that this is, um, you know, several several of the early members had also been involved in several other communities and several other movements which kind of helps because you've seen the same kind of stuff happen again and again. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that uh, I learned from uh, Shakma, the woman that I mentioned earlier, is having a big impact on me, is that people need to believe that what they are doing is important. And she just made that statement one day. Mm-hmm. And I kind of ran with it. So once upon a time, we all lived in small villages or tribal settings where Everybody, uh, whether you liked them or not, or whether you cared for them or not, they all knew your life history and who your people were. And, 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 and uh, uh, if something happened to you, uh, it got talked about. And nobody ever felt like their life was unimportant, per se, in that mm-hmm. kind of idealized – I'm doing the idealized version setting. Right. So, so that um, you're you – know, and you were remembered, and people would, would you know, tell your life story afterwards. Uh, in the ab- – 
in the absence of a sense of having being seen, witnessed, and, mem- and, and become memorialized, it, both alive and dead, by the people around you, I think that there is this hunger that arises in humans to create drama because drama is the easiest way to create the, the illusion of, of meaning. Yes. Yes. That makes perfect sense. So, and so if, if, you, if, you have, if you have real things to do and you have enough people around you saying, wow, that was great or that was intense or wow, we had that powerful shared experience together, and it's important and people have to say to each other it's important, then, then uh, that takes some of, the, some of the wind out of the sails of drama. Yeah, because you it, it, and it's almost like everybody has an investment, um, uh-huh. and it's it's not well. And I'm thinking of a particular structure where we had a charismatic leader, and the other people were very clearly followers, and right. it was it was this hierarchy, you know. And the followers, I don't think most of them felt like they were very important at all. It was more about. Um, honoring the uh let's call it the benevolent dictator so to speak sure, sure. um and and you know and and that you know uh, that's not healthy long term you know um i don't think i don't think people get what they really need out of the community that way or at least not every everyone anyhow you know um it, it it's hard it's hard and that's why well we're talking about building pagan uh communities uh tonight and um and and i guess uh, well well let's uh, and, and i mean you've said a little bit but but um uh the new alexandrian library that's a huge accomplishment that your people have uh have done speak to that right. a little bit yeah and and for folks who haven't heard about it before it was a project announced uh at our between the worlds conference in 2000 we uh, raised money and collected resources for about 17 years. And what we ended up doing was uh, building uh, a you know, concrete dome that's over 4,000 square feet um, that is a fully-fledged library. I mean, we're still in the cataloging process, which is a lengthy thing, but we've collected over 22,000 books on, on esoteric, magical, spiritual things, Googobs of ephemera magazines, photographs, uh, newspaper clippings from uh, many different sources. Uh, you can speak to, to the donation that uh, you gave us. The, the uh, Anar Nino is uh, going to be uh, allowing us to hold uh, Victor and Cora Anderson's archives at, at uh, the library. It's, we're on, the library itself is on. Um, 33 acres that are in turn part of 102 acres that ultimately all of it will belong to the library. Um, by the way, here's the fun part. Um, all the equipment, um, all the scanners, the workstations, the servers, the shelves, the building, the land, all of it is paid free and clear. There is no mortgage on any of it. Um, How which, did you manage that? Okay. How did you manage? Okay, and, and that was important because our our desire is for because so many projects uh, don't make it to the in the long run because of finances right so we didn't start building until we actually had a goodly quantity of money in the bank we weren't going to do the goddess will provide if we you know or or uh, we weren't going to do the field of dreams thing I was about to. I was about to say, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> yeah, we weren't going to do that. <laughs> we were not. We'd seen that film, and it was a great <laughs> film, but not reality. 
So we had been raising we had been raising money forever. We were holding, you know, uh, all, one of the things that we have a bunch of people in our tradition that that uh, give workshops, and uh, almost all of us several times a year gave workshops or weekend workshops. You know, whose proceeds went to the library. We held a, a conference every couple of years that all the proceeds go to the library. We encourage other people. We've uh, now it's three. We've put out three different uh, CDs of chants that we've sold to make money for the library. Um, there's uh, a couple, uh, Nikki uh, and Joe. Um, uh, Nikki's been with us forever. Her husband eventually joined, who've been going, you know, from gathering to gathering and setting up uh, the NAL store, basically selling magical uh, tchotchkes that uh, people have donated. So um, over over eighty eighty five. Somewhere around 85% of the money um, came uh, from our members or our members' activities, and the rest from the broader community. But it was basically the constant, you know, and it wasn't the grueling, you know, we're going to sell a thousand chocolate bars or cookies or, uh, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. But there was. Well, but in, in, did you say how many years it took to save that down payment? Se- Seventeen years. Seven. Wow. That, Seventeen that's, years. I mean, that's incredible longevity. I mean, I, and look, and maybe this is a California thing. I, and I mean, and I don't have any experience outside of California because when I didn't live in California, I lived in the Bible Belt. So, you know, I wasn't a pagan then. Um, right. but, but, you know, here in California, there's not that much. There, You don't have that kind of longevity anywhere. I mean, the Goddess Temple of Orange County, um, it's been around, I think, 13 years now. It struggles, struggles, struggles. I mean, the founder even had to take out a second mortgage on her house uh, to keep being able to pay the rent. You know, no one right. supports anything down here, over here. You know, and I don't know if it's what we're doing wrong. Well, or okay. <laughs> think, all right, well, well, think about it. Most of our fundraising wasn't the what we're doing is important and valuable. Give us money. It was I'm giving a I'm giving a groovy workshop, uh, and people would come to the workshop, and most people didn't know that the money from the workshop was going to be donated back to to the library. Right. Right. Or you know, here's this great CD of chants that your your coven might or, or Grove or or or, or Goddess Circle might want to use. Um, uh, listen to it; it's pretty cool. Do you want to buy these chant CD? I mean, right. Uh, th- things like the the our, our uh, you know every couple of years conference or uh, Spring Magic and, and Autumn Magic, which were our annual events we do. People knew the proceeds from that, but basically, you did the stuff that. This is sound, or or, or uh, the guy that uh, um, we had. We had a guy that uh, donated sewing robes for for you know measuring people in sewing robes at an event. We had uh, a, an astrologer. She donated a bunch of readings. But they, but here's the thing: they were all things that the pagans in our area would have been buying or wanting anyway. Right. Right. So, right. so that because because part of the problem is that we'd ran into is that yeah the the failure thing is so common that uh, people were very skeptical that it would ever happen. So rather than making them be turned off and not buy something or do something because well you know I don't know if it's ever going to happen so I don't give my money to it, give them something that they want anyway. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then, uh, yeah, and obviously when the temple came about, um, it started in someone's living room, 
And there's and, and when it first started, the community support was overwhelming. But sure, you know, sure. two or three years into it, everybody had kind of just drifted away. You know, and you thought that there was going to be enough money to sustain it. You know, um, with classes and services right. and whatever. You know, a lot of like the things you're describing. But I don't know. I wonder if here in California, people have too many distractions or something. You know, people sort of just right. drifted away. You know, and suddenly it wasn't as important as it once was. Well. Um I, over over the many years, I've uh, owned uh, metaphysical shops twice, and uh, one the last time I owned uh, Bell Book and Candle for just under ten years, and the time before that, Hen's Teeth for about four years, a um, couple decades apart. But but here's the the general rule I was taught in the retail industry, separate from everything else. No matter what you're doing, you're going to lose ten percent of your clientele every year. Mm. Um, either they move, or they're in, or they're going through stuff, or their interest changes, or mm-hmm. some some minor some minor thing uh, turns them off from coming back for a while. They may eventually come back. So that if you're not creating or attracting, uh, you know, to make up for that ten percent every year, you're automatically beginning to lose steam. Right, right, right. And 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 one of the things. Um, that is a diversity thing in a funny kind of way, um, is if you look if you look at a group, and it doesn't matter how good it is or how healthy it is, um, and not, not giving off any red flags, uh, if it looks too homogeneous, if it looks too much the same, um, and you may look at the group and go, oh, we're all so radically creatively different from each other and somebody from the outside is going to look in and say wow they're all pretty much the same i don't know if i can shoehorn myself into this group of people mm-hmm. so one of the things that um like uh we we as part of our retreat we also had a you know a coven leadership meeting that was just the people that are currently running covens mm-hmm. plus the elders and you know one of the side notes one of our older covens we were having a discussion on how, uh, for a while, anybody that shows up that contacts us in that general vicinity, um, there are like three potential covens to aim people at if they query our website. Mm-hmm. We're going to send them to to them. Why? Because they are they now have the highest average age of any of all the covens. In other words, you look at their youngest member. Their youngest member is uh, somewhere in their fifties. Youngest. Their oldest. Yes, and their oldest member is 78. Okay. Well, that's, so well, that's showing some longevity there. That's a good part. And what that means is that for, for the next uh, couple of months, if somebody uh, emails and says, hey, is there a coven in my area, blah, 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 if they get aimed at them instead of the two or three other covens that are equally distant to them. Because, because you're trying to keep it alive. If when these people... You know, or can no longer do it, or they pass on. You have new blood. Well, not just that, but diversity. Because if somebody, if somebody who's young walks in and they look like they're going to be the only young person, they're not going to want to walk in, even if it's or stay, even if if everybody was kind and friendly and they had a good experience. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's the same. I mean, we look at the same thing with gender. We look at the same thing with ethnicity or race. Um, we try to the degree that it is reasonable. 
to remind all of our covens that um, uh, every flavor of diversity is needed in order to keep um, keep alive. Mm-hmm. The other bit well, is we don't expect everybody to be woo-woo. Yeah. Um, so uh, just briefly throwing it in because I want to make sure. One of the things that I had said at the uh, conference uh, in California, the uh, Pagan, Cons- Pagan Studies Conference, was that that uh, for us to succeed in the future, we have to value the esoteric, the exoteric, and the secular. In mm-hmm. other words, the esoteric stuff, the people that have visions, people that uh, experience uh, the divine in ways that we would think of as mystical or magical, um, people who are focused on the exoteric stuff of, of having uh, faith communities, which is about providing care, uh, making sure that people have access to the kind of either counseling or support or, you know, the things that churches do, frankly. Right, exactly. And then the secular stuff. Uh, we have several members that um, are, I, I can affectionately use the term are leadheads. They really have very little, um, they perceive very little beyond the physical world. But they love the feel of being in community. They love singing mm-hmm. and chanting together. And for all intents and per- and they don't necessarily believe in any of the stuff that a bunch of us believe in. But They're having they fun and it's social and and they well it's more than social. Like there's uh, a few individuals that uh, we also do sweat lodges and other stuff. Like guess what? They will actually help come and help move a, 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 a crap ton of uh, firewood and stones right. that we may need. And right. they do it as an act of service. Right. So and they and they feel good about the fact that they are doing service for a community that they value. So really, that you know, if, if we want to survive in the long run, we have to find ways so that whatever combination of things you may be, you know, however much of the esoteric, the exoteric, or the secular you have as what you contribute to your community, um, mm-hmm. if it doesn't have a way for it to be honored, then that part's going to drift off. Well, and I can see where some communities really fell short on that, and no wonder they didn't survive, you know, because oftentimes you'd hear, oh, well, a priestess doesn't scrape the wax up off the floor and take out the trash, you know. Mm, um, no, yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. Uh, and, you know, just sort of that sort of mentality, you know, that there was this, you know, hierarchy and, uh, you know, some people were only good enough to maybe collect money at the door and handle the food table, and you know they, you know it, they, it was made, you know they they got it in subtle ways that you know they were not really the most valued people in the room because they couldn't lead the ritual at the center of the you know, at the center of the room kind of a thing, you know. Um, so, yeah, um, it, it, I mean, I, I think you guys were have really been wise in uh, being aware of that. And, and, well, like you said, you, a lot of your people came from other communities where right. they were making the kind of mistakes that, you know, I'm talking about, you know, that, that mm-hmm. I've um, uh, rubbed shoulders with. So, um you know, so it's so it's like you you learn from that. You know, you, uh, you you know you know what kind of a community you don't want to have. It, it, there's also you know, and, and I'll say something about kids relative to this because that comes up periodically. And for good or ill, uh, you know, many people in in the assembly and also in the, from my observation in the general pagan community, 
give their kids lots of opportunity to figure out what they want to do. They don't try to forcibly indoctrinate them in whatever it is that, you know, uh, their family does. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've, and, and here's, here's the thing. I actually think that um, from an ethical perspective, as a pagan, that's the right thing to do. The kids have to have yeah. their own agency, have to be able to make their own choices and, and not be, you know, dragged off to uh, – to go to school when they don't want to, or wake up one right. if they don't want to. The part where I think sometimes we get it wrong is that sometimes we, in an effort to make sure that the child has the capacity to make their own decisions, we don't provide enough guidance. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It's too. hard to find that balance. Yeah. Well, you know, that's is isn't it always the struggle? Yeah. You know, to find. You know, to find the the balance and everything is cliche uh, as as that sounds. Um, well, you know, I really loved your your talk uh, at the Pagan Conference. I mean, it was it was so thoughtful, and I felt like it was so right on. Um, you know, some of the stuff you've already shared, but were, were there some other points that you made in your talk yeah. that um, you you know you wanted to share with listeners? Yeah, I, I think that. Uh... And one of the things is that there's difference between people that are allies and people that are community. I'm going to rephrase that a little bit. So if somebody has, um, oh, I don't know, an 80% level of congruence with my core values or my perspectives on a wide range of things, that person I view as somebody who's actually in my community, regardless mm-hmm. of, of, of uh, what else uh, or what labels we may be using. Right. I expect an ally to do as good as a C minus. In other words, we we could have multiple areas where we wildly disagree. <clears throat> so long as there is, I don't know, maybe is seventy five percent, seventy, sixty. I don't know. Depends on what it is. But we often expect our allies to be much closer to us than is reasonable to expect. Um. There's this story about uh, Shirley Chisholm and uh, George Wallace, which is going way back in time. George Wallace, yeah, probably one yeah, of but those, they're like uh, on op- opposite sides of the spectrum for yeah, people you, who you don't recognize lovely, their names. Uh, lovely black uh, <clears throat> congresswoman, uh, and uh, probably one of the most uh, well-known white supremacists ever to run for uh, president of the United States, aside from the current one. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. Um, one thing they had in common was that they had both experienced poverty when they were young. And uh, George Wallace had also been, you know, shot and was in a wheelchair by that point, uh, and a lot of stuff had happened. But Shirley, when she was trying to get the minimum wage increased, she went to everyone and said, I need your vote. And she even went to George Wallace, and he voted her way. Wow. So well, in yeah, yeah. So the question is, when we're working in uh, uh, as with in allies, ask yourself for the purposes of. And each of us has to draw the line where the agreement has to be. But we we often expect um, a level of affinity and congruence that I could only reasonably expect to have if they were people that were actually part of my community, as opposed to people that I'm working in alliance with on something else. So what you're saying is too often we 
play the purist, and that's detrimental to our health <laughs> uh, or to the to the health of the community because you limit then uh, the size and scope of the community. Really, you lose the diversity. You lose the diversity, and sometimes the difference between tipping the balance, and, and this is true whether you're talking about um, electoral politics, legislation, or, or even more importantly, from my perspective, uh, fomenting cultural change. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's done in little steps over a long period of time, and that means that if there's an opportunity for an unlikely uh, alliance of groups or individuals or movements to agree on this one thing today, then let's do that and then reassess what happens on the next thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, rather than look at the, you know, uh, just have the big picture in mind, you know, just take it in bite-sized pieces, you know, uh, sort of incrementally, a day at a time, a project at a time, an idea at a time. Yeah, and, and things change. Um have you ever planned a garden? No, not really. I'm not a gardener. I'm not a green okay. witch. <laughs> okay. Well, how, how about this? Um, you, you, you have, and most listeners have the idea that uh, if, if somebody's got a brand new backyard, you know, new development, et cetera, it looks pretty bare, and they usually throw down grass real fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're lucky or if you're, if you're doing the work, you'll figure out this is where I want to plant some bushes or here's where there's going to be a tree, et cetera. And here where some perennials are going to be. And here's the problem. Um, when you look at that garden, it's going to look like um, twigs and mud. Because most people will not have the patience or the vision to see, oh, five years from now, those bushes will have come in. Those perennials will be up. Um, it'll be mm-hmm. getting to be, and then 15 years, 20 years from now, it will actually look like the beautiful little secluded garden that I wanted. Well, most people can't plant and then wait for 20 years for it to not look like they want it to look like. So you fill it up with annuals that <clears throat> pop up in one year and bloom immediately. Right, for right. And then there's for community. Yeah. Yeah. So for community projects, you have to figure out, okay, which are the things that are going to take 20 years and put them in motion, but every, but you also have to plant the annuals every year to provide a splash of color to keep people hopeful and excited that there's forward progress. Yes, yes. Well, and here again, just like your long-range planning for the library, I mean, you you guys really have a short and a long-term plan. Yes. And uh, the the deal there is that that's only possible. Um, History builds history. If you, if, like, uh, they're, 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 I don't love everybody in the assembly, (laughs) Nor, nor, nor should I say that that's a reasonable thing to say. I, I acknowledge them. I like most of them. And there's some people that I actually, you know, think of as brothers and sisters in, in a full way and others that I think of as colleagues. Mm-hmm. But, but here's the thing. In, if you manage to keep together long enough, you develop enough history so you go, okay, that person is having a bad day today. I will, I will, I will forgive that. Because mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen them long enough, or um, there's enough of there's enough history to know. Oh, okay, I know why they're reacting to this this particular way. There is a social lubrication, a greasing of the of the rough spots that happens when you have enough of a span of time with 
people or groups to see, okay, I, it's, that's not the way it's going to be forever. That's not a sign that, that we're going down the tubes. That's just what happens when the following things occur. Or um, it's kind of like having a long-term friend. Yeah, 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 of course. You're fr- sometimes uh, you have arguments, but the friendship you know it's not manages to stay intact. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it may, and, it may and, take and I, time. And and I and what you're talking about is the maturing of a community, you know, uh, and it makes me feel so heartened um, because you know my experience has been that most of the time when things you know get rubbed a little bit wrong, people take their ball and they go home, you know, um, it, it it and and then you know and, and so instead of maybe having two or three nice sized groups, you know, you have. Uh, I don't know, 30 people with, you know, four people in their living room, you know, and uh, and, and you've got a, a bunch of those instead uh, of of a integrated community, so to speak. If I don't know if I'm verbalizing that right. No, I know. I, I, I totally get what you're saying. <clears throat> I mean, one thing that's valuable, <clears throat> which was easily recreated, and we have, uh, in addition to in-person meetings, which I think there's no substitute for um, we have also a uh, conference call for people that are leading covens, and half of it is about just getting support from the other people and about uh, what it's like to run a coven. Mm. So having peer, actual peer support uh, and, and, uh, and also peer snarkiness when, when uh, people then tell you, yes, you actually did make a mistake that time, and, I, and, and we're not happy about what you did. So there's yeah. accountability. But also um, – uh, like uh, I'm on a call once a month with uh, five other people that are um, movers, shakers in different communities that are not part of my tradition. Okay. Because as as another kind of peer group. So one thing is that you know encourage people to form different networks to check in and get reality checks because um, <clears throat> a lot of a lot of times I think what goes sour is that if you don't have a system by which you can get support and um, scolding as needed and if you can't get a reality check from people that are not enmeshed emotionally in the situation it becomes harder to uh, un- un- unless you're you know meditating uh, uh, vigorously every day and clearing and doing energy clearing or whatever else you do um, and even then that's not enough to make sure that you're actually clear-headed enough to to make a good choice about things when things get tough. Mhm. Mhm. Well, that that sounds wise, you know, it it uh because sometimes we're too close to things and you need someone who's, you know, just a bit on the outside to give some perspective. So, the role of elders in the assembly is uh and we have three elders so far, we may have a few more in in, in a couple of years. Um but elders are technically uh members of the assembly as a whole, as, as, as opposed to uh, any one individual coven. At least that's the best way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the elders, among other things, act as ombuds people so that if there's something that uh, you have a concern about, but you don't want to bring it up to the people that you believe are the cause of the, or of the difficulty, you take it to an elder. Mm-hmm. Well, so, it's good to have that resource. Yeah. Or, or, or in in the cluster of four covens, um, you can you know in a, you can also bring it up to one of the other coven leadership and one of the covens that are part of your little village, if you will. Right, right, right. 
and and also people compare notes. I mean, a lot of times um, it is. It, I, I I'm probably belaboring it, but um, so much of what works is when you have enough other human beings that you actually interact with directly. And I don't, as much as I love technology and the internet, um, if, if if you are relying upon the internet for for that kind of uh, support, community connection, and uh, feedback, um, it, it goes off the rails really easily. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, uh, but and I mean, look how hard it is just to understand one another on email. You know, right. I mean, right. it, it's. Uh, uh, just you know, being in the room, feeling a person's energy, seeing uh-huh. their body language, hearing their voice. There's no substitute. I mean, even 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 Skype. You know, uh, you know, Which vis- with, with nothing the, but. Yeah, it still isn't uh, isn't the same. You know, you can't put your arms around somebody uh, in, on Skype. You know, mm-hmm. or or touch someone's hand. Uh, you know, if they need it in Skype. So, and, and if um, you see each other, and if you see a lot, each other enough, often enough, and frequently enough in real world, then the, the the Skype or internet stuff works better because you have enough experience of that person. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I'm curious about your leadership. Um, do you rotate leadership? Do the you know the people sort of? I, I mean, is it? I, I know you said you do a lot by consensus, but. Um, how how does that work? Well, um, well, the big stuff is by consensus. The day to day stuff often, it, 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 like I said, it depends on the nature. So, oh, yeah. so, uh, but uh, none of the covens. All right. So one of the other differences is uh, the covens do not belong to the high priestesses or the high priest. Okay. So, for example, um, and you don't always get that option, but there, there, most of the covens have at some point rotated who's running the shop in, in terms of who's the high priestess or high priest, or we try to have both. It doesn't always work that way. And if somebody doesn't have quite enough uh, notches under their belt, they ha- don't have the right degree yet, um, but uh, have skills and long history, they can be an acting high priestess or acting high priest. So we do have rotation within each of the covens. And we also, but, but uh, for example, we've had uh, a number of times when, uh, for all right, so uh, Carm, uh, uh, who's been with us, uh, I guess, golly, I don't know, going on, uh, you know, twenty, twenty-five years, decided that she wanted to form a new coven. She already is a high priestess of a coven, and she started a class and created another coven and moved on. And uh, the coven was inherited, if you will, taken up by one of her other priestesses. So, okay. uh, when we have grown, more often than not. Um, the new, the person who is the newly minted um, third degree isn't the one that goes off. It's usually uh, somebody who's already been running a coven uh, basically leaves their old coven uh, and uh, goes forth to form a new one. So most That's of the covens, have, most of the covens yeah. have been formed by people who have already run a coven before, as opposed to for their first uh, effort they'll create a coven from scratch. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. That. Uh... Uh, and, and again, that's not been my experience either, but yeah. yeah. Well, and also um, because the covens belong to the assembly rather than to individuals, um, mm-hmm. I, there there are, there are two, 
cases over the course of, let's see, we've been around since 1984. There have been two cases where uh, where coven leadership have not been uh, – they haven't been told to hit the road, but, but uh, in both cases they uh, ultimately chose to depart. Yeah. Um, because if if there's too much trouble, uh, and, in, and in one case it was um, a young man who uh, whose talents and ego exceeded his common sense. Uh, too bad because he was really really talented. And in another case, it was the matter of that uh, unfortunate situation where the, the coven was run by a married couple that was in the process of having their marriage not not exist. Yeah, and that's hard. And that happens. Yeah. So, but here's the thing: uh, in, ni- in uh, both of those cases, those covens still exist because as soon as it was clear that there was difficulty, the what because you have had other covens nearby, the the thirds from the nearby other covens would rotate through and take turns um, teaching, uh, running rituals, until basically providing proctorship and life support for those covens until they could internally take up the uh, task. Very wise. Very wise. Um, I, I really like that. You know, uh, usually what I've witnessed is, in fact, just the opposite. You know, um, you know, usually someone coming up in the group could never expect to take the helm uh, because the HP uh, would never relinquish it, and so they ended up having to leave and go start their own thing. You know, um, or uh, or somebody, you know, a couple would divorce and then the coven fractures and people have to take sides or whatever, you know. Um, And that's, and I've seen that, and it's really unfortunate. Yeah, But 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 here's the thing, and and you've gathered from what I've been saying that, you know, we're a degreed system where people have, you know, degrees, and third degree is is the degree that's the uh, level for a high priestess or a high priest. Mm -hmm. So let's say that you're in a coven, and you've gotten your first degree, you've gotten your second degree, and you're now, you know, almost done with your training for your third degree, uh, it is not up to your high priestess or high priest whether or not you get that degree. Um, okay. They have to, because so, a lot of times uh, there's a weird kind of think, power thing that happens about uh, getting your third degree. So what we instituted from the get-go is that if somebody's coming up for their third degree, then uh, they're, that, that's brought before um, a little little panel that uh, we lovingly call the Inquisition, though it's really not. Uh, it feels <laughs> like it. It feels like it. But basically, uh, all the third degrees are, are invited to attend that, that uh, can geographically make it. The person uh, basically, think of it like a dissertation defense. The person basically explains, you know, what they've done and what they've trained and what they can do, la, la, la. And they get to ask questions. We get to ask questions. They leave the room. The thirds debate it and vote on whether or not they want that person to be a third. So it's not up to one individual or two individuals. It's up to the body of people who are thirds. And and there and that thereby also, uh, you know, creates the structure of community as well. You right. know, it, it, it's not one all-powerful person. Nope. You know. Nope, it's not. And everybody yeah. has, and, and, and if it's a successful vote, then the person knows that, that there are multi, more than multiple people who actually believe that they're up, that they're ready for the job. And has their back. That's and great. And has their back. Yeah. Well, and now the library. Who owns the yeah. library? Pardon? The library. Who owns the library? 
All right, so technically it's under the uh, 501c3 for the assembly of the sacred wheel. And we do everything in graded steps. So, for uh, for example, right now um, there's a committee within the assembly that basically does the library. Um, over the course of the next two, three years, um, probably there'll be an advisory board of outside people added to that. If you come back 10 years from now, <clears throat> there'll probably be a separate board of uh, trustees for the library. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because... Um, the other thing we, uh, we've noticed that works or doesn't work is too much too fast makes organizations and communities go boom. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's kind of like a graded step up into the library becoming more of its own thing separate from um, the day-to-day tasks of the assembly and also as more people get online both within and also outside. Um, the land that the library is on, I said there's 33 acres that currently belong directly to the library. That it, that's on 102 acres. Okay. Um, uh, there are six. Uh, there's three households that, that are on the property aside for, that are on this larger chunk of land. So uh, originally, all the land belonged to me, Jim, and Nancy. And uh, the, basically, over the years, what's gone now? Now there's two other households and the library. Um, by the time uh, I'm an old fart, and I'll have to decide when, when, when Jim and I are old farts, um, the only thing we'll own is the house we're in, and all the land will have been deeded over to the, the, to the library and the assembly. Mm-hmm. So, but, but initially, when, when we first started all this project, um, you know, Jim and I and, and Nancy and, uh, it sold our homes and bought the land and said, okay, eventually uh, – we will, you know, be, begin the process of, uh, of, of, of giving this over as the community and as the organization grows to fill the, the capacity right. to manage. Right, right. That sounds like something we have out here in California, uh, which is ISIS Oasis, oh, yeah. uh, up north of, um, north of San Francisco. Something mm-hmm. similar uh, happened up there. Um, well, believe it or not, we've already talked an hour and 15 oh minutes. I mean, it's, it's just flown by. Um, uh, and, and there's so many different uh, directions we can go. I still want to, I, I want to hear what you want to say about why magic is important, and I want you to talk a little bit about your books. Um, is there anything more you wanted? I, I mean, there's so much we could say about building pagan community. I mean, it yes. could be a weekend workshop, you know. Absolutely. So this is just sort of a thumbnail uh, but is there anything you think that's so important that we shouldn't gloss over it before we talk about your books and why magic is important we, we, we probably need to move on yeah. okay all right so um, why is magic important Evo <laughs> well all right besides besides the fact that I will say that um, uh, for a lot of the people in our community that was what drew us in in the first place um, I think, and what I mean by magic, uh, some people are going to say that's really magic and some people are not. If you have the experience of uh, being touched by um, a divine being, divine force, that's magic. If you find that your skin is vibrating while you're standing outside in in, in the middle of, of the forest or underneath the moon, that's magic. If you have um, a sudden sense of knowing what you need to do next, that's magic. 
And it is the thing that ultimately starts the process of spiritual growth and religion and anything else that we value. Though all of us, <clears throat> but how much of it you need on a day-to-day basis um, in, your, in your practices, that's going to vary from person to person. Where we get in trouble, I think, is when we try to uh, impose uh, beliefs on how important or unimportant, what percentage of magic. This is, as we see, um, dialogues that are not always productive between um, secular uh, humanists and uh, very religious people or humanist uh, pagans and uh, strong, strong polytheists. Um, Ultimately, there is a drop of this in everything, whether or not it is um, properly expressed. We get in trouble when we try to banish it from the world, which is, I think, what has been going on um, for the last uh, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, depends on where you want to draw the line. Because when we lose that little tiny drop of magic in everything, then the world and the people in it uh, become more easily exploited and with less moral outrage. So I think magic well, is, 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 is the thing that makes the world important to me. And, you know, and, and I love that you said that because, honestly, what you described as magic, I bet there are a lot of people who would not define magic that way. You know, well, uh, sure. their, their definition of magic is, or, is not some of those rather subtle things, um, and sometimes not so subtle, you know, that, that you yeah. mentioned. But, you know, they're looking for, I don't know, something almost akin to what you might see in special effects on a movie, you know, uh, or, um, I don't know, uh, I don't know, look, you know, you've seen people do uh, you know, binding spells and things like that for protection, and you know maybe they've worked. Who knows whether it was the spell or, or I mean, did the spell really make it work? Who knows? But I, I guess what I'm saying, manipulation more than you know some sort of manipulation, whether it be of the elements or people. Uh, I think they're calling that magic more than the things you described as magic. And, and I would say that they all are, but. Um, we don't need Hollywood special effects for it to still be magic. True, true. And and I think it's important that those things that you mentioned, even the subtle stuff, um, ranks, you know, is recognized uh, as important and magic. And, and, yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, I think we are living in a culture that, uh, you know, we, we're, it, it, it's like, uh, I don't know, spiritual poverty comes to mind. Um, and uh, I, I think we're so starved, and um, and I think maybe and even in a lot of cases they, we don't even know what we're starved for. Mm-hmm. We just know there's an emptiness, and that may also be related to the the questions and discussions we were having around community, and because if you feel that. Uh, that uh, what you do is 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 magic is uh, is something that uh, is a spark of beauty a spark that uh, will live beyond uh, the moment and perhaps beyond your life even if it's just in somebody else's memories if you don't believe in an afterlife 
that changes your relationship to whether or not you need drama, whether or not you need to do something to prove that you matter. Right, right. It fills that hole that may be some that that people have in, inside of themselves. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know. I mean, you might even, you know, it it uh, it, it nurtures your self worth. Right. Nice, nice. I like that. And I mean, and and really, it's sad to think um, what the world would be like without any magic in it. I mean, we would just basically be, um, you know, robotic or something. You know. Well, um, uh, magic is very much like uh, the uh, the definition of, of hope that we use a lot in our group and. Hope is simply the belief that it is possible for things to change. Doesn't even have to say that 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 uh, it hope. I, I hope something hap- the, the good thing happens. No, as long as you believe that change is possible and and, and not, then then uh, um, there's reason to persevere. There's reason to continue. Yeah, yeah, and and we're we're really in the dark place when. Uh, we no longer have hope or we've become so cynical, um, you know, that things, uh, you know, can't be different, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, your books, uh, your books are Casting Sacred Space, uh, Spirit Speak, uh, Practical Astrology, and the new one coming out, The Keys, Keys to, to Perception. perception. Right. Um, why don't you pick one and... Uh, Tell us maybe uh, the most interesting thing about it that you think um, listeners might like to know. Hmm. Well, what, <clears throat> why don't I say something about the practical astrology one? <clears throat> uh, though, uh, apologies for the lengthy titles. As as you may not know, publishers pick them, not the author. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I uh, like long titles. <laughs> it uh, it well, helps okay, you know good, what the book good. is about. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So. Practical astrology is not just for people that want to be an astrologer. Think of it as uh, one of the things, themes in the book is that astrology is the hidden language, descriptive language that you've been looking for and you didn't even know that you needed it. So when people um, think of sacred languages like Sanskrit and Greek and Hebrew and you go, yeah, it's going to take me a while to learn those, one of the things people often complain is that English lacks some of the words that we need to describe things. And I would argue that some of those words are already present in uh, astrology by the names of the planets and the signs and the aspects, the, the trines, the squares, sextiles, because you literally learn to think of the qualities that are uh, connected to, that are within the container of each of the different uh, luminaries, each of the different planets and stars. And then when you look at, this is an herb of Saturn, or this is a crystal that resonates to blah, 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 it actually means something because you also begin, like any language, when you learn it, you begin to think in that language to a degree, even if it's just by translation at first. So language is a is important in magic and in spirituality and, frankly, in politics, too. And astrology is actually the sacred language for the description of energies and essences 
um, in, in, in this uh, expanded universe that uh, most spiritual magical types work in. So even if you're not all that interested in um, using astrology in your spells or rituals or meditations, though there's a lot of value there, uh, learning a new way to describe forces and forms, it's like having new words that add meaning to your life, like when you finally uh, got uh, your first exposure to the, the four elements or any number of words that have become part of your magical vocabulary. It's a way of thinking. Interesting, interesting. Um, that, that, is, uh, that is very fresh and different. Uh, and, and, and of interest to somebody like me who I could care less about learning how to do astrology. Right, right. But, but this, this seems, um, seems useful. There's, plenty, there's a ton of books for people that want to be astrologers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but my take on it is that uh, it, astrology is like math. Uh, if you're if you're a magical person, you you need to know a certain amount of math to you know balance your checkbook or do whatever thing else. But you're not going to be a ther- theoretical mathematician. You need to have enough astrology so you can be fluent in those ideas. But it doesn't have to be your thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so who uh, do you have the same publisher for all of these books or um, Wiser for. Uh, Keys to Perception, Practical Astrology, and Casting Sacred Space. Um, Spirit Speak is with New Page. Okay, all right. Um, all good, uh, good top uh, pagan publishers. Um, well, uh, Evo, um, anything else uh, you would like to say uh, as we wrap up tonight? Yeah. Um, look at the people that are part of your community and also the people that are not part of your community. And pay attention whenever they do anything where they're showing affection or kindness to somebody else or expressing wistfulness or something of that nature. And remember that the next time you're pissed off with them because uh, the idea of loving everyone in an absolute pure way is ideal but very difficult. But noticing those moments of humanity and affection and and joy in other people it makes it easier for you to look at them more, more in a more uh, whole way when you do have to deal with them around difficult things. Mm, very, very wise advice. Thank you for that. Uh, what, a, what a great um, sharing to uh, end our talk uh, tonight. Um, you know, I want to thank you for a lovely conversation. Um, if some, if someone wanted to. Um, I don't know, delve more into this building pagan community. Is there any anything written anywhere that uh, you would maybe lead them to? Or Wow. Um, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I, you know I've been, absor- I've been absorbing stuff like this for years and talking to lots of people for years. Let me think on it, and I promise I'll, I'll, I'll send you something. Okay. All right. Um, and if we go to your website, which is evodominguezjr.com, um, what would we find there aside from your books? Um, it also has a, a, a calendar of which gatherings or conferences I'm teaching at. Um, occasionally, I'll post something there that is just a snippet of something, um, a piece of fiction like a short story or a poem or a piece of artwork. Um, it varies. Uh, but it's mostly where I'm teaching next and uh, what I'm up to with my writing. I also link to uh, information about the uh, various uh, 
chant CDs that uh, I've helped uh, to uh, create over the years because I'm a great proponent of chanting uh, to uh, make magic and ritual happen. Absolutely. Okay. Well, again, thank you for this evening. Uh, I uh, I am so glad to have met you at the conference, and uh, and dare I say to call you friend. Uh, I I I hope um, sometime uh, our paths cross again. Oh, I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure that's going to happen. Okay. We'll, we'll catch up at a conference. Okay. All right. Well, well. Good night, uh, and the best of luck to you uh, with uh, all the great stuff you're doing. Thank you so much, Karen. Okay, good night. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, a wonderful guy in touch, wise, um, an, an elder, certainly an elder in his community that uh, so many of us uh, could learn so much from. Uh, before we go any further, we have a message here from Laura Perry. The Minoans of ancient Crete, an egalitarian society where women were honored, where the sacred feminine was revered, where peace and prosperity reigned for centuries. Hi, I'm Laura Perry, and I'd love to help bring the ancient Minoans to life for you. Explore Minoan spirituality with my books, Labyrinth and Horns, and Ariadne's Thread. Embrace your creative side with the Minoan Coloring Book and discover the wonders of divination with the Minoan Tarot. You'll find all these at Amazon and other good online and local bookstores. Find out more on my website, lauraperryauthor.com. Um, and if that piqued your curiosity, Laura Perry has been on the show a few times. Uh, you can find our uh, interviews uh, talking about Minoan Crete uh, in the archives here. And um, uh, I want you to hang on with me um, uh, after this uh, commercial from Joe Carson because I'm going to tell you um, where Pat, our roving reporter, uh, found some interesting stuff, namely where right-wingers get all these anti-choice laws, uh, because yes, there's literally a book, and also um, why the world needs a vagina museum. <laughs> okay, uh, but first, a uh, word from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind is really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, um, what you were listening to was the trailer uh, for Dancing with Gaia, 
Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of goddess as Gaia. You know, Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this incredible film. Uh, these spiritual sites uh, range from northern Scotland to central Turkey, uh, and they have profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. You know, so many of us uh, would love to see these uh, locales ourselves, uh, but, you know, we haven't gotten there. And this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. DancingWithGaia.com. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, while we're talking about books... um, I wanted to introduce you to uh, my two anthologies, uh, which I'm calling uh, Manifesting a New Normal Anthology Series, Volumes 1 and 2. Yeah, because, you know, we say down with the patriarchy, may patriarchy fall, but do we know what we want to replace it with and how do we get there? Uh, You know, we have to have some idea, some vision before we can manifest it. And I think the wise voices uh, in these two anthologies of mine um, actually are, um, you know, some tidbits of wisdom and guidance. Uh, The two anthologies in the Manifesting a New Normal series is uh, Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward, and Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. Uh, If you're interested in these, uh, I am offering a special uh, to radio show listeners. You can get uh, both books signed as long as you live in the United States. I can't uh, offer this price if you're outside uh, the U.S., but you can get both books signed, uh, including some free gifts I throw in, for only $34, and that includes shipping. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can go uh, to PayPal, uh, and uh, just uh, you know, put in the box paypal.me backslash Karen Tate. That's paypal.me uh, that me uh, backslash Karen Tate. Uh, and if for some reason that doesn't work for you, go to my website karentate.com. Go to uh, the Goddess Store page and go all the way down to the bottom of the Goddess Store page. And when you can't go any further, you will find a PayPal button that if you click on it, you can submit any amount. Uh, So if you want these two books and the free gifts, that would be $34 you would uh, punch in there. And uh, that, uh, that will get you this special. Uh, the special price for the Manifesting a New Normal Anthology Series, Volumes 1 and 2. And Volume 3 is coming. Uh, It may be out before the end of this year because I do have a new book coming out called Awaken the Feminine, uh, Dismantling Domination to Restore Balance on Mother Earth. Yes, indeed. Okay, so Pat, our roving goddess reporter, uh, sent me this article by uh, Amanda Marcotti, and she found it at salon.com. And the headline was, Where do right-wingers get all these anti-choice laws? There is literally a book. 
Well, for those who have ever wondered how all these Republican state legislators uh, seem to all come up with the same ideas for restricting abortion access at the same time, there's an answer. It's because of a group called Americans United for Life, or AUL. The organization, which incorporated in 1971 to fight the then-growing movement to legalize abortion, puts out an annual model legislation handbook called Defending Life, which is then distributed to interested legislators. The handbook is the original source of nearly every abortion bill that gets introduced in state legislatures. The Texas law known as HB2, which was struck down by the Supreme Court in June, was developed out of this handbook. The new rash of anti-abortion bills being introduced in state legislatures this year uh, largely come from this handbook as well. For the past couple years, the handbook was released in January ahead of the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and this year the book didn't come out until March, and it's no surprise. Anti-choice forces were dealt a pretty serious blow in the Supreme Court last summer and realized that the sham behind HB2 was basically exposed by the court. Uh, said Amanda Allen, the senior state legislative counsel for the Center for Reproductive Rights. Uh, The state required abortion clinics to meet ambulatory surgical standards and to have hospital admitting privileges with the state justified by claiming they had regulatory authority over medical clinics. The court, however, agreed uh, with the argument that since these regulations were medically unnecessary and were burdensome for clinics, they could not be justified. The decision makes it more difficult for AUL to continue pushing anti-abortion regulations under the guise of protecting women's health. So, yes, there is a book out there put out by Americans United for Life, the AUL, called Defending Life. So, yeah, uh, that's their go-to Bible to take women's rights to their bodies away. And... um, Uh, Pat sent uh, this other article, The World Needs a Vagina Museum. Uh, uh, Florence Sketcher uh, is the sort of person who gets a good idea, starts a project, and sees if it sticks. Uh, She says, I like just going for things and seeing if they work. I get upset if it's if I've got a good idea and I can't actually put it into action. Well, this outlook is what led her, after realizing that the world lacks a museum dedicated to vaginas, to start planning to rectify that omission. There's a chain of events that led to this particularly good idea, Schechter says. Uh, She studied biochemistry but realized she likes talking about science more than doing science. After college, she started a YouTube channel so she could keep talking about science. Uh, One of her videos is about animal penises because she's interested in the mating behavior in the animal world, and as a follow-up, she wanted to make one about vaginas. Well, she looked for information about animal vaginas. However, it was hard to find. A friend had recently visited the Icelandic uh, Phallological Museum, and Schrechter uh, thought, well, Uh, If there's a penis museum in the world, maybe there's a vagina museum that could provide some information about animal vaginas. And there wasn't, she said, so she decided to start one. Florence Schechter is the sort of person who runs with a good idea. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, so there are vagina-related collections and exhibits, such as the Great Wall of Vaginas, the Dinner Party at the Brooklyn Museum, and a small museum focused on gynecological care. But there's no physical space wholly dedicated to the vagina and the people who have them, Schechter writes on her new Vagina Museum website. Uh, related stories, uh, a visit to the synthetic cadaver factory, how, uh, why scientists dread, okay, forget that, okay, uh, forget, skip, skip, skip. Uh, moving on, in her vision, a full-scale vagina museum should have permanent galleries dedicated to science, in particular the anatomy of the vagina and its companion organs, uh, and vagina health. Uh, domestic violence and female genital mutilation into the vagina as portrayed in art and other cultural media. It should host events like comedy nights, dance classes, confidence workshops, and plays. It should have programs for community outreach in addition to offering support for charities, uh, charities working on vagina-related issues. Ultimately, the idea is to have a physical space where people can come to learn about and talk about vaginas and an instruction that can be a force for good for all things vagina-related. Uh, so to start this museum, Schechter is raising money and testing some of her initial concepts. Uh, in May, uh, the Vagina Museum will present its first comedy night at a converted warehouse event space in London, and Schechter is starting work on what she hopes will be the museum's first traveling exhibit, which will focus on basic anatomy and health. Uh, the Eve Appeal, a gynecological cancer research charity, conducted a survey of British women and found that only half of young British women could locate a vagina on a, a diagram. Uh, the, so the first job of the Vagina Museum may simply be to educate people uh, with vaginas regardless of gender identity about their own bodies. Uh, so this is very interesting. Uh, we will have to follow... Um, Florence Schechter, and I'll spell her name in case you want to Google her and uh, see if there's any new information. Uh, Schechter, S-C-H-E-C-H-T-E-R. Uh, she says there are people who don't yet see the need for a vagina museum, a small minority of feminists, for example, or angry that such an institution would define women by their vaginas. In fact, Schechter is dedicated to making the project gender inclusive and not defining people by anatomy. And predictably, more conservative-minded people have questioned the need to make vaginas more visible in any way. Of course not. Let's hide them. We don't like sex. But for the most part, the response she said she's gotten has been positive. Um, in one feminist Facebook group, someone tagged their friend in a post about the Vagina Museum and wrote, she stole our idea. So apparently this idea is out there in the, uh, like, osmosis, and it's floating around. Schechter figures uh, they must have thought up the idea over drinks or while hanging one day and just never acted on it. Uh, she says it was so validating to know that other people have had this idea too. However, uh, out there, it might sound to some, the world needs, wants, demands a museum dedicated to the vagina. And I, for one, agree. I wish there were one in Los Angeles. I'd uh, volunteer to be on the board. <laughs> Okay, well, that about does it uh, for tonight. Uh, dear listeners, I will be back with you next Wednesday. 
Uh, I was off uh, two weeks this month. Um, Nancy Vetter Schultz um, was supposed to be on on the 10th, but I was ill. And then the next Wednesday I was on vacation uh, taking a much-needed break. Uh, But uh, for the next few weeks uh, we will be here every Wednesday night. Uh, Please go to my show page and click the follow button uh, because if you click the follow button, you will get notice of um, shows uh, in your um, email inbox. Uh, That way you don't have to uh, find out about it on Facebook or through an email from me because you know what? I don't always have time to uh, send out uh, promotional um, reminders about the shows that are coming up. And that way you won't miss anything. And if you're, you know, if it doesn't sound like something you want to take the time to listen to, you can always just hit the delete button. All right. Well, that all said, uh, remember uh, one of our mottos here, what you um, nourish and what you um, nurture, uh, what you tend to, what you focus on, that all thrives. So um, if you're focusing on things that are not good for you, it's just going to thrive, so stop focusing on it. Um, and you know, likewise, uh, what you neglect, what you don't focus on, it withers. So... Um, you know, again, good and bad. Uh, if you, uh, you know, are hoping something is going to happen in your life, you have to make sure you put the energy into it to make it happen. Because there's one certainty: if uh, you don't put the energy necessary, uh, it certainly won't happen. It will wither. So the saying is, uh, what you uh, nurture. It thrives what you neglect, it withers. So think about that in all phases of your life, from our friendships uh, to our money to our jobs uh, to our projects. Uh, You've got to put in the time if you want something good to come out of it. And if you want something to go away, well, just stop thinking about it. Okie doke. Uh, well, I promised that I would let you um, hear the that whole uh, song, We Are the Rising Sun by Reclaiming. Uh, so I'm going to find it here in the, um, in the audio library. And uh, hang on, it's right here. There it is. Uh, so sit back uh, for the next uh, five minutes more and enjoy. And uh, remember, I love to hear from you. Uh, If you have any guest ideas, please get in touch. Uh, And if uh, you have been enjoying the show and uh, uh, what you learn here adds to your life, uh, I hope you will support the show with a donation of some kind, uh, either by buying my books or possibly a monetary donation, uh, which you can make through PayPal by going to uh, my website, KarenTate.com. Go to the Goddess Store page, Scroll down to the bottom, and you can make a donation of any amount. Uh, Thank you very much. I know you have uh, lots of choices in what you listen to out there. So when you do uh, listen to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, it is much appreciated. Uh, Thank you for your listener loyalty. And good night. We are the change, we are the ones we've been.
Obrigado.